I've looked forward to this event uh, beginning uh, for quite some time now and appreciated the invitation to come and be with you all and look forward to the study with you today. If you would let me do this this morning in this regard to the beginning of the importance of the Lord's Church and how it applies to our day and time in this 2013 time, then, uh, then we'll move on to questions and comments that you can make and interest our class this morning with a good, good study. I suppose that I'm probably the most studied individual that you've had in this position. People have heard me on radio broadcast out of Bates for that 15-minute program was a full preparation program every morning. And for almost 35 years of time, we were voicing that thing. number of people were converted as a result of the teaching being done. Uh, one of the favorite stories I like to tell is of a young man in Middleton, Tennessee. And he traveled to work in Memphis every day, and he came down Highway uh, 64 to uh, Memphis to work. And he listened to that radio broadcast. It was right after Paul Harvey News at 7.30. And we came on at 7.35 and went to, to 7.50. And uh, he listened to that program along the way. His wife was a member of the church, but he was not. And he listened to that broadcast along the way. He had always rejected obeying the gospel. And one day he went home after a couple of years of time, he said. And he said, uh, I need to get in touch with a local preacher here at Middleton. He said, I need to be baptized into Christ tonight. And she said in her curtsy way, because she had tried to get him to obey the gospel and be baptized into Christ before, she said to him, what do you know about baptism? And he said, well, that man on radio that teaches from the Bible tells me it's very important to obey the Lord. And he said, I finally decided that that's what I really ought to do, and I want to wear his name. And with that, she called up the preacher. He was baptized into Christ. Several years went by at that point in time. She was happy, he was happy. They were growing, they were working with young people around the Middleton area. And uh, we went on a trip from Batesville at that time up to Pinevale Children's Home for their holiday program. And uh, I met him and I walked up to him and told him my name and he said, I know your name in the dark. He said, I've heard your voice, and I know that voice. And he said, my, he said, now listen, my wife, he told me a little of the story. He said, my wife doesn't know you're here. He said, I want to prepare you, though. When she sees you and knows who you are, you're going to get a hug like a bear hug. It's going to take your breath away. So you take a deep breath before she jumps at you. And with that, he went away. And in a little bit, I was walking around that particular area, and he was standing by her side, and he called her by name, and he said, Darling, this is Robert Ross. Still brings tears to my eyes. I never had somebody in my life to jump three feet and land on my chest with arms around my neck, crushing me with a karate blow, and I didn't have time to take that breath. <laughs> and she was excited. She was happy. She was thrilled. It was a great, great, great day, great meeting. That type of thing happening is to the opposite. There was a lady that uh, shortly after the first year or two of studying the Bible, she was in 
Pentecostalism. And her husband was so direct into it that he told her when she was talking to him about obeying the gospel and changing, as she said in that time, her church order. If you do that, don't you come home. And she did that. She obeyed the gospel. She kept growing and learning. He left the home, never came back all of his years. They lived another 20-so years of time. Her illness took her to the far reaches of the Delta, down around Belzona, Silver City area of Mississippi. And at that particular place is where she died. She uh, was buried down there by her family there in that area. The uh, other part of that story is that she had another funeral plot outside of Batesville at Mount Olivet Cemetery on the way to Water Valley that will never be used. She lived her life in some sadness because her husband would not listen and read the scripture that she was pointing out to him and the candor that she was. She was very kind-hearted, very good-hearted. She sought to show him the things of the gospel and he would not respond to it at all. And so he left the home, went into another state and another state and stayed there for quite some time before we made any contact back with her. But when he did make contact back with her, she was seeking in an orderly time, not rough and not mean, but in an orderly time to show him, teach him the gospel of Jesus Christ by just simply opening the Bible, laying it on the coffee table. He knew what that was all about and uh, he would repel it. He'd close it. He'd throw it away. He'd not accept that message. So as happy as one person is, as sad a situation as someone else is. And this morning we're talking about the God of heaven who made a great plan. The church of our Lord is not there because somebody decided, okay, it'd be good for people to gather together. It'd be good for people to meet. It'd be good for people to talk to one another. It'd be good for people to rehearse Bible and read scripture and talk to one another. No, no. The idea is that God had a great plan. There is something behind the statement of Jesus in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to what? Save that which was lost. Something behind that. There was a great plan. Why did He come? What was His purpose? He said what His purpose was. To seek and save the lost. Uh, to save you and me. To be of help to us as we live in this earthly life. Think about the relationship we have with the Lord and that it is a plan. It's not because we sought Him. John will write in regard to that love in 1 John 4 because He first loved us. It was not because we first loved Him, not because we first thought about Him. It was because He thought about us and He loved us. He cared for us. If you turn with me in the Bible in regard to this matter to Isaiah chapter 2, and in reference to this particular point, you'll see the plan of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. And this house of God that is mentioned here in Isaiah 2 is set forth to be a wonderful, wonderful place to reside. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Rather than read that particular, quote that particular thing, I want you to note the first two verses is speaking regarding the prophecy of what will happen in what time? In the last days. 
Not my day, not our time, unless it is the last time, but in the last days. Reference will be made to those last days. The Hebrew writer will write in regard to this matter in Hebrews chapter 1 that it was in the last days that Christ Jesus came. The last days, the idea that this Christian dispensation in which we live is summed up in those particular terms. The beginning of the last days would have this to be done in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills and all, all whom would flow to it. All nations would flow to it. That must have been to the Jewish mind. That must have been to anyone candidly studying uh, Isaiah the prophet. That must have been a disturbing and a challenging set of words. That all people will flow unto it. Surely he meant all of the rest of us. In Issachar and in Nebuchadnezzar and in uh, Judah and Levi and Simeon. Surely he meant that. Never did they think in regard to the fact that there would be, surely, the idea of Gentiles coming into this house. And yet the scripture goes on there to describe what would take place in this house. What's the mannerism? What's the attitude that these people who were former enemies one to another? Here, what's the attitude that they're going to have in this house of God? Well, they'll beat their swords into what? Plowshares. And the spears that they were throwing at one another and the enemy that they were wanting to hit with that spear would be developed into pruning hooks. What about the use of plowshares and pruning hooks? What would that bring about? Well, cultivation, harvest, fruit, the bearing of a garden. These people would live together. They'd eat together. They'd help one another have a, a produce. They'd help one another do good. You see the idea? Completely different than the idea of we'll use these swords and we'll use these spears and we'll use them for the intended purpose. Instead of melting them down and reshaping them and using them as instruments of agriculture, we will use these things against one another. The concept is to be of peace. The concept is to be of help. And in the world in which people live, if spiritually we are servants of God, what's going to happen to those warring spirits around us? Well, Peter tells us about that. 1 Peter 4, verse 4. When he says that they'll think it strange of you that you do not run to the same excess of right. The idea that you used to go with them, you used to go with them in the events of the rites, and you used to go to them to sharpen the edge of the sword and to sharpen the spear. You used to go with them in these ways. But what has happened to you, they say? They think it's strange of you. The word at large will think it's strange of you. If you're working in a company, working in an office, working in a factory, working on a farm, or doing business with someone, at a feed store or at a, a retail store, a hardware store, and suddenly you don't cuss like you used to cuss. You don't talk about the women like you used to talk about the women. You don't size up the men like you used to size up the men. You don't talk against the home and family like you used to. They won't just sit there and take that. 
Peter says, they will think it strange of you that you don't go to the same extremes that you used to go, the same practice that you used to be in your life. As a result of this wonderful house of God being built in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills, and they would say, come, let us go. Somebody is going to be inviting others. Keep in mind now this idea. This is the plan of God. Later we will recognize in this plan, as Paul will write to the brethren at Corinth, that he put this treasure in earthen vessels, that the power might be seen to be of God and not of man. No one man could do that saving. No one man could do that way. When Jesus came and said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, in John 14 at 6, he's setting out a way in which people can live, or people can go and travel, people can serve commendably, and it gives them the greatest sense of glory that they can have. They live their life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You don't come to the Father but by me. What man could say that? But Jesus could say that. And Jesus knew that. And some of the most touching words of our Lord found in John 17, about verse 4, when He said, Father, I've done, at the end of this mission now, I have done what Thou hast sent me to do. Glorify me now with the glory that I shared with thee, when? Before the world was. What's this plan going to do? It's going to help people. I came to seek and save the lost. It's going to help people. There'll be people now that because of this, they'll invite others, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us His ways and we will walk in His paths. Well, His way of Isaiah, as predicted, and the house of God being established, Jesus is picking up on and saying, I came to seek and save, all right. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way that if you follow my way, they're going to think it's strange of you that you don't go to the same excesses that you used to. They're going to talk strangely about you. But it'll be worth it all someday. It'll be worth it all to you. For I have come and I have done, Father, what you sent me to do. Glorify me now with the glory I shared with thee before the world was. What was it like up there beyond the sky when Jesus and the Heavenly Father were agreeing, as Jesus did so quickly, agree to this great plan. The best of man's wisdom would be changed and turned against him. The tables being turned, why, that would be the, that would be the greatest of the, of the most unspoken words. The tables being turned on death itself how death could not hold him. Isaiah would say the bed's too short and the covering's too narrow. <laughs> and it, it was. It would be the case that in this great plan of God, it was going to be irrefutably carried out. 
Someone says, well, you needed the help of Isaiah. You needed the help of uh, uh, Nehemiah. You needed the help of uh, Malachi. You needed the help of John the Baptist. That's overstating the case, isn't it? God raised up these men. God raised up this so that it would contribute to what? That plan. And in that plan being carried out, it was a marvelous plan. It offered great hope and a great way of life. When you and I, brethren, take our lives and we set out our way of life in order to be people who want to fight, who want to battle against one another, who want to succeed at conquering one another, we want to apply the sword, we want to cut we want to apply the spear. We want to kill. That's our way of life. We're far from the house of God that's predicted. We're far from the attitude that is to be exhibited in the house of God. Individually, each one of us can make that decision within our lives. I'm not going to be the person like that anymore. I'm going to get busy with the smeltering tools and I'm going to get busy with the swords I have to be beaten into plowshares. I'm going to get busy with the point of this spear being dulled and fixed into a pruning hook. I'm going to get busy changing the way that I live. Though others may think it strange of me, it's going to be worth it to have that glory with the Lord someday, somehow, some way. God's great plan was involved with his life of, of work and labor. And number two, look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 11. And you'll observe that in the book of Revelation, it'll be noted there that the Lord in his great creation of this whole world in which we, we occupy, we live, is for a purpose. Why did God need, why did he need mankind and why did he make mankind to be people that needed help, people that needed forgiveness? How important that word is to God. And in his great plan, he planned something that people who are guilty and feel the sense of being guilty really want to embrace more than anything else. They want to embrace that hope. They want to embrace that kind of, of peace within. That their relationship with the Lord is of such nature that they will be that kind of people. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy good pleasure they are and were created. When we find ourselves looking at things in the world in which we live, we say, well, the Lord ought to make us stronger to resist uh, temptations in life. The Lord ought to make us more powerful to resist trials and troubles. The Lord knew and He looked ahead and saw the sinfulness of mankind and He knew that mankind needed a Savior, needed a Redeemer. And He planned for His Son to be this way. What man would offer his son 
but one who had the awesome power to call him back to life. And so he did. Why would he not give that man the strength to become victorious over every challenge that he faces in life? And it's because of this idea. For his good pleasure, these things are. And these things have been created. The mind of God, the nature of God's work in the world in which we live and the plan of God is a marvelous and amazing thing. We should be ever more thankful and prayerful for it. We should be ever more courageous to uh, defense it. Because after all, back to Isaiah one more time and Isaiah 2, Isaiah said, the people will say, come let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us whose ways? His ways. We will walk in whose paths? His path. When we talk about the message being preached from the pulpit or taught in a class or taught in any of our individual classes to our little children, we want to insist that the word of the Lord be presented we won't insist it because that's the way of the Lord. We won't insist it because that's the teaching of His way. And nothing less will do. And nothing greater, of course, will be acceptable either. Some people find themselves involved in uh, teaching a class and never, never teach an error. They never, never get into an error but they never, never prepare those young people and the middle-aged people. They never, never prepare them for the challenges that life is going to bring, for the unsettling arguments that are going to be made, those arguments being made without the full picture of God's teaching, without the full picture of the word definitions, without the full context of the application. And as a result, they weave the thing that they believe. But it's not God's way. It's not His will. But it's presented in such a way that it's false. But these are never prepared for that. Never prepared for the challenges. Living close and baseful for these years. And then in years gone by, uh, living close to uh, another university in the Delta. When we were at Ruval, Mississippi for... Uh, some 10 years of time. We found the changing uh, nature of the teachers, the professors at those places. We found our children going those ways and finding the challenges that they were being issued against the Bible and against the values that are so contained therein. Time and time again, we were summoned to help prepare a student for the challenges that were being faced in that classroom. And some successfully done and some not successfully done. Uh, but it wasn't because that we waited too late to talk about those particular matters. You live here in this area. You're in a, a developing and very prosperous area of, of uh, this area, of this state. You have challenges that are going to be faced 
if we don't prepare ourselves in our classes and studies and preaching of God's Word to follow His way and do His will, we're going to find more and more sadnesses of sin and wrongdoing to be occurring. We're going to find more and more people involved. We need to teach and show people that they can't overcome the ravages of uh, addiction to anything, alcoholism, pornography, anything that is exalting itself against the name of Christ. We need to prepare ourselves by prayer. And uh, in prayer regarding these particular matters, specifically, we need to prepare ourselves for, for family fights and family fusses that are going to occur when wills are read and when death has occurred within the home and family. And we find that there's going to be disagreements among the heirs or supposed heirs. How are we going to react to that? Isn't it a shame for a Christian to react unacceptably to that set of circumstances? But they're the most natural set of circumstances in life. Someone is going to be heavy on the foot. Someone's going to be speeding down the road. Someone's going to be stopped, maybe threatened with an arrest, certainly issued a uh, a ticket. That person is going to face that with what kind of words? What kind of criticisms? And we can help that individual because God's Word speaks to how we're to react to disappointments and challenges and being guilty of events that take place in this life. All the above is a part of the teaching that we are to render practical applications. And if I'm told anything in regard to the kind of preaching that I do and the kind of application that I do, it's to this area that the most practical side of uh, teaching God's Word and living for the Lord from day to day is urged on. And I think it's because of my uh, working with local congregations where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, where the day-to-day challenges are going on and I've seen various things of which I've illustrated this morning to be those things that people are not prepared to face, not prepared to pray about, not prepared to overcome, and should have been. And we should do, should do that for certain. Close out with a passage in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. And then we'll open it up for you. To the intent that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to His eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The heavenly places to be made known by the church. It's good to be personal workers. It's good to reach out and teach the gospel to others. It's good to knock at a door and have somebody come to the door that had no idea that they would have a spiritual interest. But because of your dedication to it, you were not asking for money. You were not asking for them to sign a petition of some kind. You were not there to confront them. You were there to invite them to a gospel meeting or there to invite them to a study or to an awareness in a community. Or there You were there to help them. They felt the non-pressure of someone, they felt like that you were a true friend, though you were a cold or evangelist. 
There you were. Uh, you didn't ask for their money. You didn't ask them to sign a petition. You were not challenging them, confronting them at the door. And therefore, they wanted to embrace the thoughts that you had in mind at least for a little time. And along with that little time, you showed them that you were not trying to teach your own gospel, your own message. But that, in fact, you were opening the Bible to everything that it revealed to them and to you as well. And that you applied this Bible to yourself and to your way of life. As a result of that, they became taught the Word of God. Some of them would accept it and obey the gospel. Some of them would not. You always worked with them. You always prayed for them. You always kept going back and inviting them again to come and be a part of these events. And trying to help souls is what you were about. It's a good and noble thing, but this passage in Ephesians 3 at verse 10, when it says, by the church, is really not talking about being a good personal worker. Although it's wonderful to be a good personal worker and good to reach out, the Lord intended by the existence of the church to declare His wisdom to the world. Talked about that plan of God and how that plan came to fruition in Jesus' ministry and how He had done all that the Father commanded Him to do. Restore to me the glory I shared before the, before the world was. Beautiful words. Now here is a message for these people out here, these uh, disciples, to be guided and directed on the day of Pentecost to teach the full gospel of Christ. And as they went along, all the examples in the book of Acts show us how that message was taught. In every instance, they needed to be baptized into Christ, and they were. And they began to live for Him in the local congregations where they lived, whether it's at Jerusalem or Antioch or Ephesus or over toward Rome or wherever. They were people who were laboring and working with the Lord. And here the church at Ephesus is being written this epistle and reminded that this is all because of the mission that Jesus Christ carried out. This is all because of the plan that God the Father had that Jesus was willing to carry out. And this wisdom that He had by the church to show to the world His manifold wisdom. When you and I become members of the body of Christ and we realize that this, the church of our Lord is a spiritual entity that we have a hope beyond the grave, that we have a hope of the soul. We are thrilled and we are overjoyed. It never, can, it never can be taken away from us, you might say. We take it away from ourselves, but so others we can't take it away from us. We enjoy the hope that we have. and We enjoy the rescue that I have been delivered. You think about the way of life that you and I used to follow. I had a wonderful family background, a wonderful set of grandparents and all, and was taught the gospel and shown the gospel. And, but here's the idea. That once that is done, you've got to someday embrace it yourself. You've got to someday admit it that I want this myself. And when you do embrace it and you accept that way, it is a joy to your soul. It's a wisdom of God that is displayed that you want to participate in. Wonderful is that blessing, the eternal preparation of God that He made. 
Hope you've enjoyed this presentation in this particular part. Now let's turn for the last few minutes of time, and the bell will ring shortly enough thing, and to say what questions you may have in mind. About these particular verses and thoughts in mind, what comes to your mind that impresses you, and you've studied it before perhaps, or you've sought certain information before, and you've studied out a topic, what's in front of you? I'll walk up to you just so that the microphone will kind of catch a little bit more of the voice so everybody can hear at one time. But outside of that, uh, what questions do you have in mind, thoughts you have in mind to talk about? Would you elaborate a little bit more on verse 12, confidence and the boldness Paul speaks of it? In Ephesians 3 at 12, when he talks about this wonderful blessing of God in the church being the bountiful wisdom of God expressed to the world, the existence in the community makes a difference. He moves on the idea that this is something that we have. And it's something with which we as servants of God can be bold. We can be overjoyed with. The Hebrew writer uses expression boldness in this regard about our way of life. And he talks about us boldly coming before the throne of God. The idea that we as mortal people could come before God could impress upon God a need, a prayer of request for ourselves or for our friends or for our family. The idea of being so bold as to, and so brazen to do that shows us the friendship of God. Shows us that this plan of God's wisdom was to help us. And yes, I believe he's uh, pulling that idea in at that particular point in time to say, Although this is a bold thing, it's not considered to be too bold by God. It's not considered to be too brass by the Lord. This is the way that it was supposed to be. This is the plan of God. Some other studies you've done, you could have two hour lesson study today about these verses and this idea of God's eternal plan. All right, I have a few questions for you then. In my <laughs> class time. Why did God make this plan? Why did he make this plan that was going to take ages to carry out? The better part of 6,000 years to invoke now. Why did he make this plan? I believe you go back to Revelation 4 and verse 11. There's a part of God... That's unrevealed to us. Moses alluded to this back in Deuteronomy, did he not? You know, 29 and 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong unto us. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. This is one of those things here in Revelation 4 and 11. For His good pleasure, these things are and have been created. He wanted this to be done. As far as I know, the Bible doesn't reveal that the birds need a Savior or that the rabbits need a Savior or that the uh, vegetable crop in the garden, the radishes and onions and lettuce need the Savior. They may need water. They may need some fertilizer to grow. But Savior, no. Uh, as far as I know, the Bible doesn't reveal anything in regard to that. But the needs of man need a Savior. And there's nothing else to satisfy. 
There's not being a good enough neighbor, good enough friend, good enough citizen, even a good enough member of the church to merit God's wonderful, outstanding grace. Yet he offered that grace, offered that kindness to lost and sinful mankind. He wanted to love us that much. Another question that comes to mind in this regard is in regard to this matter. Why would we see Isaiah 2 and the prophecies made regarding the house of God and the identity of the house of God mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 being the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Why would anyone wish to set that set of verses in Isaiah instead of application to the house of God, the church of the Lord that we know, to yet a future time. Establishing their, in their minds the kingdom is not here yet. We're not part of it yet. We can't have that hope yet. Why would anyone change that? And the only thing I can figure in regard to those particular matters that are clearly set in front of us and the alterations and changes that are made is that somebody really wanted to have that doctrine to be accepted. Some man, some person, some scheme wanted that to be accepted. That's the full authority of it. That's the full measure of teaching of it. It's not authorized of the Lord. It's candidly the opposite of what's stated. To say the house of God is not here yet. The kingdom of God is not here yet. The hope that we have in Christ is not here yet. I really appreciate your participation and your thoughts, and I hope that you've enjoyed the beginning of this study that you have during the course of of these few days, Lord willing. Thank you for your time this morning.